911, what's your emergency? Yeah, uh, there are these weird lights in the sky. I don't know how to explain it. You're gonna think I'm nuts, but I think it might be a UFO. What's your location? I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. Jesus, this thing is huge. It's hovering right over us. Good evening. My name is Alex, and I'll be your host tonight as we deep dive into some of the world's greatest mysteries. You're listening to Mysteries After Midnight. Tonight we'll be discussing the boomerang light phenomena, starting with the Phoenix Lights. On March 13, 1997, between the hours of 7.30 and 10.30 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, witnesses from Nevada to Tucson to the Mexican state of Sonora reported seeing a large V-shaped object containing five to seven spherical lights traveling south from the northwest. Witnesses reported seeing two separate craft shapes, one a boomerang shape and the other a triangle shape. Most reports were of a boomerang-shaped object. A pilot flying his son to visit his girlfriend was one of the first people to report the lights. His son noticed the lights first and asked what they were. The pilot didn't know, but noticed that there were six lights over the airport in absolute uniform in a V-shape. He decided to call it in to see if there were supposed to be any other planes in the area. However, no other planes were reported to be in the area at the time. That pilot was Kurt Russell. At 7.55 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, a man reported seeing a V-shaped craft over Henderson, Nevada. He claimed that it was approximately the size of a Boeing 747, sounded like rushing wind, and had six lights on its leading edge. The craft was noted to be moving from northwest to the southeast. The next report came from an unidentified former police officer from Paulden, Arizona. After leaving his home at about 8.15 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, driving north, he saw a cluster of reddish-orange lights in the sky. The formation consisted of four lights together and a fifth trailing behind. He returned home and watched the lights through binoculars until they disappeared over the southern horizon. Around this time, callers from the Prescott area began reporting the lights. Many of the reports stated that the object was definitely solid as they noticed stars being blocked from the sky as the craft passed over. One report came in from Devin Lorenz and his aunt Jamie Lorenz. While standing on their porch, they noticed a cluster of lights to the northwest. The lights appeared to be in a triangular formation, and all lights looked red with the exception of the light on the nose, which appeared to be white. The lights were observed for two to three minutes, passed directly overhead, banked to the right, and then disappeared to the southeast of Prescott Valley. Altitude could not be determined, however, the objects seemed to be flying low and made no noise. The National UFO Reporting Center received the following report from the Prescott area, quote, We observed five yellow-white lights in a V formation moving slowly from the northwest across the sky to the southeast, then turn almost due south and continue until out of sight. The point of the V was in the direction of movement. The first three lights were in a fairly tight V, while the other two lights were further back along the lines of the V's legs. During the northwest to southeast transit, one of the trailing lights moved up to join the three and then dropped back into trailing position. 
I estimated the three light V to cover about half a degree of sky, and the whole group of five lights to cover one degree of sky. End quote. Tim Lay, his wife Bobby, son Hal, and grandson Damien Turnage first saw the lights when they were above Prescott Valley, about 65 miles away from them. The lights first appeared to them as five separate and distinct lights in an arc shape, as if they were on top of a balloon, but they realized the lights were moving towards them. As the lights got closer, they said the craft appeared in the shape of a 60-degree carpenter square with five lights set into it. The object came down their street, about 100 to 150 feet above them, traveling so slowly it appeared to be hovering, and made no sound. It passed over their heads and went through a V-opening in the peaks of the mountain range towards Squaw Peak Mountain in the direction of the Phoenix Sky Harbor International Airport. Witnesses in Glendale noted that the object was high enough to be obscured by thin clouds. Bill Grainer, a cement driver hauling cement down a mountain north of Phoenix, reported seeing a triangular formation. He said, quote, I'll never be the same. Before this, if anyone had told me they saw a UFO, I would have said, yeah, and I believe in a tooth fairy. Now I've got a whole new view. I may just be a dumb truck driver, but I've seen something that don't belong here. End quote. He said the lights hovered over the area for more than two hours. Another report came from a young man near Kingman. Pulling over and calling in from a payphone, he reported a large and bizarre cluster of stars moving slowly in the northern sky. Governor Fife Symington also reported seeing the lights and described them as otherworldly. Shortly after the sighting, Symington held a press conference stating that they had found who was responsible. He proceeded to make light of the situation by having his aide come up on stage dressed in an alien costume. However, in March of 2007, he admitted that he had been a witness to the 1997 event, but elected not to go public with that information. In an interview with the Daily Courier, Symington said, quote, I'm a pilot, and I know just about every machine that flies. It was bigger than anything I've ever seen. It remains a great mystery. Other people saw it, responsible people. I don't know why people would ridicule it. It was enormous and inexplicable. Who knows where it came from? A lot of people saw it, and I saw it too. It was dramatic. And it couldn't have been flares because it was too symmetrical. It had a geometric outline, a constant shape. End quote. He also stated that he had requested information from the commander of Luke Air Force Base, the general of the National Guard, and the head of the Department of Public Safety. However, none of the officials he contacted had any information on what had happened and were equally perplexed. The Air Force later submitted an official statement claiming the lights to be high-altitude flares. As a former Air Force officer, Symington disagreed with their statement, explaining that, quote, I can definitively say that this craft did not resemble any man-made object I've ever seen. And it was certainly not high-altitude flares, because flares don't fly in formation. End quote. In an episode of UFO Hunters, Symington said that they had contacted the military for information on the event, and the only response he had received was no comment. Pointing out that at the time he was the governor of Arizona made the military's response a bit more suspicious. Phoenix City Councilwoman Frances Barwood launched an investigation into the event. She said that out of the 700 eyewitnesses she interviewed, quote, the government never interviewed even one, end quote. She continued to press for more investigation into the event. However, it is reported that she elected to ignore the supposedly singularly most important witness to file a report, according to the Phoenix New Times. 21-year-old Mitch Stanley, in his backyard with a telescope capable of giving him 60 times the resolving power of his naked eye, saw the lights coming from the north. When his mother asked what they were, he simply stated, planes. He said, quote, 
What looked like individual lights to the naked eye actually split into two under the resolving power of the telescope. The lights were located on the undersides of the squarish wings, and the planes themselves seemed small, like light private planes. End quote. He only spent about a minute looking at the lights before directing his attention to more interesting things. After being asked why he didn't look longer, he said, quote, They were just planes. I didn't want to look at them. They were planes. There's no way I could have mistaken that. End quote. He was apparently so certain that his mother didn't even bother to look through the telescope herself and never would have given it a second thought had the following day's news not consisted of UFO-related headlines. She contacted a co-worker about what her son saw, and he tried to push through to different news outlets to take an official statement about the planes to dispel the UFO rumors. However, they never received any calls back, and criticized Barwood for not contacting them about the planes, even though Barwood stated that she tried multiple times before their number was misplaced. Air traffic controller Bill Grava, who was on duty at Sky Harbor International Airport during the March 13th event, said he also saw the lights, but not until they were on the southern horizon, disappearing behind South Mountain. The lights were so bright he initially believed them to be flares. He confirmed that the object did not appear on radar, a fact corroborated by Captain Stacy Cotton of Luke Air Force Base. This doesn't rule out them being planes, since the radar used reads signals emitted by transponders in the airplanes themselves. In a formation of several planes, usually only the first plane would turn on its transponder so that it could be tracked, but if it was off, it wouldn't be picked up. The legality of this action depends on the altitude of the planes. Within 30 minutes, witness reports confirmed that the planes had supposedly traveled a distance of 200 miles, suggesting an airspeed of about 400 miles per hour, but most reports described the object as flying slowly at an altitude of about 1,000 feet. Eyewitness reports aren't known to be overly reliable, so most of them are taken with a grain of salt in these situations. If the group of planes appeared to only be moving at 50 miles per hour, but were actually moving at 400 miles per hour, they would have to be in a much higher altitude than that which was reported by witnesses, somewhere in the range of 6,000 feet or above. The fact that some of the reports mention the lights operating individually rather than being fixed to a craft would support this being a group of airplanes rather than a UFO. The way Mitch Stanley described the planes would fall in line with descriptions of A-10s or T-37 fighter trainers, aircraft commonly used by the military. Numerous Southwest military bases were contacted about the planes, but none of them claimed them. Rumors of the formation being the Canadian Snowbirds, a group of T-37s that fly in airshows, was quickly dispelled when a spokesman for the Snowbirds stated that their season didn't begin until April and that none of them were in Arizona at the time of the event. The unusual lights, flight formation, and lack of transponder signals suggest the possibility of a well-calculated hoax, if they were, in fact, planes and not an extraterrestrial craft. There were two separate reports during the March 1997 event, one of a triangular light formation and another of a boomerang light formation. The Air Force later claimed the triangular formation to have been flares. Anyone that has seen a flare knows that, while typically unable to remain in a structured formation due to wind, they can hover over an area for a prolonged period of time and cast a very bright light not resembling those which normally adorn aircraft. With a light breeze, it may appear that the lights were moving slowly across the sky. The flare story would fit nicely until Bill Grainer, the cement driver's, account that the craft hovered over the area for nearly two hours. Although, no information about where the lights went after that point, if he even stayed to watch that long, could be found, meaning it's possible that the flares went out at the end of that time, or if it was a physical craft, traveled to the next location. 
There are a few flaws with the flare theory, and while my data may not be 100% accurate and is partially based off of averages for that time of year collected from other years, I can describe what the wind pattern most likely was for the night of the event. The majority of the witness reports noted that the lights appeared to be moving from the northwest to the south-southeast at a very slow speed. The average wind speed for March 13, 1997 was between 5 to 9 miles per hour, 9 miles per hour being the highest sustained wind reported at Sky Harbor. There was no official wind direction information found for that specific day. However, the average wind direction for Phoenix, Arizona in March is predominantly west followed by south. The probability of a northern wind during March is very small, meaning that while the lights coming from the west going to the east tracks with average weather patterns for that time of year, the fact that it seemed to be coming from a more northern direction raises some concerns in the flare theory. Not saying it is an impossibility, and without the exact report from the day, it is certainly possible that there was a northern wind that day. However, one report watched the lights change direction from presumably southeast to south. Of course, ignoring whatever effect wind may have on the direction flares move, the flare theory can probably be ruled out for a much more simplistic reason. That being that the lights were reported in multiple cities and states within an easily tracked timeline, indicating that it was in fact a singular object or group of objects. Flares, on average, burn for between 10 and 60 minutes, so unless the military was committed to dropping flares in multiple cities consecutively, without fail, without anyone noticing, on a fixed timeline, on a secret training operation so secret that not even surrounding Air Force bases were briefed on it, then it probably wasn't flares. However, let's humor the flare theory for a minute. After watching the footage from 1997 in all its grainy, pixelated glory, I noticed multiple lights existing outside of the boomerang formation in most of the videos. The lights outside of the formation would hang around at a similar altitude for a while and then disappear. I tried as best as I could to take the video frame by frame to analyze the actions of the light during the disappearance to see if I could pick up on anything unusual. Ultimately, due to the limitations of the film captured, minute details couldn't be captured, but from what I saw, I can say that no strange movements or actions were taken as it just blinked out, something that flares can typically be seen doing at the end of their burn time. In one video, the lights in the formation seem to slowly appear, hang around for a while, and then disappear, leaving only one light. As mentioned before, something flares are more than capable of doing. The boomerang also appeared to hang at a low altitude and seemed to rotate periodically, remaining in formation. If the flares were dropped at the exact same time, or within a fraction of a second of each other as the plane flew by, theoretically it could be possible for the flares to line up within an evenly spaced formation at the exact same altitude while they burned. And if you were far enough away, you probably wouldn't be able to see the smoke trail or any parachutes the flare might have, leaving the formation to look like some type of aircraft. However, accomplishing this feat in practice is nearly impossible. It is highly unlikely that five to seven individual flares would remain in perfect boomerang formation at the exact same altitude for the entire duration of the event, not to mention the blatant impossibility of this exact group of flares being able to travel over multiple cities and across state lines before burning out while traveling, at most, nine miles per hour on the wind. But what if the military dropped another formation of flares? Again, incredibly unlikely. Since getting them in perfect formation the first time was the equivalent of winning the lottery, I would say it's even more unlikely that they would be able to accomplish the exact same thing a second or third time. 
which leaves the most likely option being a group of planes, flying in a precise boomerang formation at a much higher altitude than reported, yet somehow maintaining an impressively large light emission, making people believe the planes were much lower than they actually were. According to the footage, and acknowledging that the event happened at night, meaning that there are almost no points of reference to determine movement in some of the videos, the lights appeared to hover in one place for prolonged periods of time, which, as stated before, would be impossible for planes to accomplish at the altitude the lights were perceived to be situated at. Having seen the videos myself, I feel like there is no possible way hundreds of people would be able to mistake the altitude of the objects to the degree they theoretically were mistaken at, since the footage appeared to have captured them at a low altitude. Basically, anyone with eyes would be able to tell these lights were not 6,000 feet high. Most all of the footage captured of the event was taken with standard cameras and camcorders readily available to the public, none of which were intended for scientific evaluation, and none of which were taken with night vision equipment. Television station KSAZ reported that Richard Curtis, a resident of the Prescott-Dewey area, recorded a detailed video of the lights that supposedly showed the outline of a spacecraft, but that, unfortunately, the footage had been lost. The only other video showing the outline of the craft was of very poor quality. It is supposedly on YouTube, but I was unable to find it. There were also several reports and theories around this time claiming the possibility that this could be more than one aircraft. In fact, the popular theory was that this was actually three different spacecrafts, all in the same formation. The theory of three separate aircrafts would certainly explain how this UFO was able to be seen by so many different people in so many different cities in such a short period of time, while the aircraft appeared to not be moving very fast at all. Fast forward to April 21st, 2008. The lights made a reappearance over Phoenix, Arizona. Local residents began calling in, reporting that the light formation changed from a square to a triangular formation over time. A Valley resident reported that shortly after seeing the lights, they saw three jets heading west in the direction of the lights. An official from Luke Air Force Base denied any Air Force activity in the area at the time. On April 28, 2008, a resident reported that the lights were nothing more than their neighbor releasing helium balloons with flares attached. This was confirmed by a police helicopter. The aforementioned resident, wishing to remain anonymous, did come forward and admit that he was the one that had released the balloons from his backyard on the night in question. There was no reason stated for why he did this. Hoaxes like this often give skeptics plenty of justification to dispel all UFO sightings at large. However, even though this was confirmed to be a hoax later on, we can't ignore the fact that the Air Force Base sent three jets in the direction of the lights to check them out which probably means that the Phoenix Lights event of 1997 probably had more to it than meets the eye. Only a few times in history has a UFO sighting been recorded by such a large number of witnesses with such consistent craft descriptions. UFOs are one of the most debated mysteries among paranormal phenomena. Human beings tend to have an inherent arrogance that boasts our species supremacy with claims of being the only intelligent living species in the entire universe. But what if that isn't the case? It's statistically impossible for Earth to be the only planet in the universe capable of supporting life. And if we are the only life forms existing in the vast emptiness of space, well, I find that far more unsettling. Regardless of the opinions of individuals, it's hard to ignore such massively reported eyewitness accounts and video footage, especially when history proves that this isn't the first time an event like this has occurred. In fact, 
nearly the exact same event occurred 2,500 miles away on the opposite side of the country just 15 years earlier. That concludes part one of the Boomerang Light Story. Stay tuned for part two, where we travel back in time to 1982. Is it really possible that visits from other worlds are far more common than we're led to believe? Is the same species of extraterrestrials keeping tabs on us? Join us next time as we dive deeper into this strange phenomena. From the Mysteries After Midnight team, stay safe out there.